up in my mouth. I don't know if it's going to come out or not. So I just, just started. But I praise God. It could be worse. That right, Brian? So if you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 45. This morning, as we continue our walk through the book of Genesis, we come to the 45th chapter. Um, and it is a continuation of the history that we looked at last week um, in chapter 44. There we were able to see the test fully applied to the brothers. In that chapter, we saw that the brothers were repentant and ready to lay down their lives for Benjamin. Judah was the ringleader in the sale of Joseph, and thus leading the brothers into sin, he it was that had to lead them out. Judah does this in two ways. First, he humbled himself before Joseph and pleaded for the boy, not because the boy was innocent, but because Joseph had all the power. Secondly, Judah offers himself as a substitute for the boy, stating that he, as the surety for Benjamin, could not face his father without him. We were able to, to make some connections with the stealing of the cup and the household idols that Rachel had stolen from her father Laban. He, we said that uh, we said they were both objects of divination, supposedly. Rachel was the youngest wife and Benjamin was the youngest brother. Both were hidden in a bag. In both cases, there is an oath of death given on whomever it is found with. But the climax of 44 was Judah's pleas for his brother's release from slavery. Judah showed us our need for confession of sin. He was willing to die, for his own, uh, die to his own life to see the boy go free. He foreshadowed for us Jesus, our elder brother, taking our place, dying that we might live. Now we are at the climax of this history <coughs> of Joseph. And though in the last chapter he had, we have Judah in the place of Christ, this type switches back to Joseph in this chapter. He is the one that must reveal himself to his brothers. It is he that uh, was sent by God into slavery and death for the whole world. Christ became a father to the Gentiles that Israel might be saved with the Gentiles. We see then the binding in heaven, what is bound on earth, as the church is given the best of the land and the eschatological glorification of the church. Gifts being given without jealousy and the reviving of Israel. What great hopes we have been given for so many years. We must know that though it is bleak in the West right now, that the same God who sent His Son to die for us will not fail to deliver the whole world, even those who were of the physical descent of Abraham. If you will, please stand to honor the reading of God's Word and remain standing as we ask God the Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of His Word this morning. Genesis 45, starting in verse 1, the Word of the Lord reads, Then Joseph could, no, could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to, to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, and your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of your brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. 
So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brother talked with him. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your household and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, the ten, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went up to Egypt, out of, out of Egypt, and came to the land of Canaan to ja- Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And G- Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, his, their father, revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Glorious and almighty God, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. That him him being alive and, and speaking these things to us, you have called us to witness to. Make us a witness in the world. Glorify Yourself through us, Your people. And may, Father, You be magnified as we seek to do these things for Your glory. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Christ reveals Himself to His brothers. Joseph, unable to contain his tears anymore, has everyone but his brothers leave him. This was that nothing would be hidden or tiptoed around. You know how it is when you've got to confront somebody or there's a, an issue that has gone on, it is better to do it privately. And, and the reason is you don't have to stop yourself from saying certain things or letting out too much or, or making it too known. Rather, you can freely talk with that person. This is what Joseph's doing. He does not want his brothers to be shamed before the Egyptians as they would hear these awful things that they had done to Him. And this is the grace that Christ gives to all His people. Right? We, we are not publicly shamed. Right? When we come to Christ, we, we don't have to stand before the whole congregation and tell all the bad things we've ever done. In fact, when we talked about confession last week, remember I said it's not that you have to remember every little inkling and sinful thing that you did. Because we need to realize before Christ, everything we did was sin. And so all we have to say is, God, forgive me. I am a wretched sinner. And so he he doesn't put us on display. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't pour derision on us. He privately deals with us and speaks to us about our sins, even now. So we can say that Christ reveals himself full of compassion out of the world. Henry says... Thus, Christ graciously manifests Himself and His loving kindness to His people out of the sight and hearing of the world. How gracious is our Savior that we are called by Him out of the world that we can come without shame. Our shame is not poured out on us. It is completely taken from us because Christ took it to the cross. If we died on the cross with Christ... 
and our sins were taken away, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Right? We have no reason for shame. Remember we, we said we, we come and we bring sin before God and He's like, that is taken care of. That is covered in the blood. It doesn't mean we don't kill sin within ourselves, right? It doesn't mean that we don't seek to do better. But it does mean that we don't carry around this morbid death of shame because of what we've done and continue to do. Because Christ has removed that from us. Though Joseph's brothers were dismayed and fearful, he draws them to himself. He spoke peace to them and gives God the glory for their actions of betrayal. Think about the fact that Peter, the head of the disciples, denied Christ and thereby took part in Christ's crucifixion, yet Christ called him to draw near. This is the reason we start our... Uh, worship services with Robert saying, Peace be with you. As this was what Christ said to His scattered sheep after His resurrection. John 20, 19-20 says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When He said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Every Lord's Day, we are reminded that Christ has had compassion on us, though we, along with all of mankind, sent Him to the cross. This manifests the compassion and loving kindness Christ shows His church. Luke 15.20, we read this morning. We know the prodigal son story, right? It says, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Though we squander every gift God gives us, every gift he ever gave us on our own pleasures or on our own passions, He has compassion on us. He's compassionate. He runs to us in Christ and embraces and kisses us. Think about that. No matter what you've done, we we have a lot of people that tell you, well, you can't can't do that, that sin that's unpardonable, that unpardonable sin Jesus talks about. Friend, let me tell you, you can never do that because Christ is not on the earth making miracles. That's what he's talking about. Giving credit for what the Holy Spirit did through Christ to Satan. That is the unpardonable sin. There is no other sin in the world that you can commit that God can't forgive you of. That Christ can't cover with His blood. Not one. There's nothing you could have done. There's nothing that that we can hold out and say, this is too much. He is compassionate. He embraced this embracing kiss, cleanses us of our idols, and we love Him supremely. This was the promise we were given in Hosea 14, 8 and 9. The word of the Lord reads, Ephraim shall say, What have I to do with any more, do any more with idols? I have heard and observed Him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit uh, is, a fa- is found in me. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. When Christ speaks peace to us, we shun our old ways and we become wise. How do we become wise? We take His Word. We learn from Him. We begin to live our lives according to that Word. Right? He who loves Jesus obeys His commandments. That's what Jesus said. And so we no longer walk in our ways anymore. We no longer please our flesh anymore. We walk after Christ. We walk in His footsteps. We do His will. We love Him. We keep His commandments. He makes us like green cypress trees. When does a cypress tree die? When does it go dormant? When does its leaves fall off? Never. Never. 
is an evergreen. And that means that we are planted beside the rivers of water, like the psalmist says, giving our fruit in its seasons. We produce fruit by the power of God. Christ does that in us. So, so we need to get rid of this idea that you can say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe Jesus raised from the dead. I believe that He went to heaven. You can believe all that and still end up in hell when you die. Because it is the true salvation that not only takes our sin and devours it, but it also cleanses us of the power of sin. We no longer walk in it anymore. We no longer are our old selves. We are dead. And Christ lives in us. That is how we know. And, and, and guys, I'm telling you, we don't, we're not fruit inspectors. I don't come and see what Brian's doing or, or what Robert's doing to see and judge whether or not he's a Christian. But listen, you should be judging yourself. Paul says, test yourself lest you find out you're not in the faith. You're disqualified. And so, this is what we need to make sure of. Right? We need to make sure that Christ has spoken peace to us and He's producing fruit in us. And if He's not doing that, if we're not like that green cypress tree, if we're not like the tree planted by the rivers of water, cry out to Him right now. Cry out to Him right now because you're dead. You're dead in your sins and you're doomed if you do not repent and believe the gospel. God sent Christ before us into the world that we might be saved by a great deliverance. All our shame and guilt can be removed because this was the plan of God to save His people. We need not grieve or be angry at ourselves. This was for our good and for Christ's glory. Christ, our forerunner, has gone into heaven to deliver us there. Christ is Lord of the world. So we should tell Israel to come near and be saved. Verses 9 through 15. Joseph tells them, hurry and tell Jacob that he is Lord of Egypt. He previously said that he had become a father to Pharaoh. Now, this clearly means that the first emperor of the world was a disciple of Joseph. This is the kind of relationship we must foster with those we disciple. And, and it's hard uh, because you have to father them. You have to be like a father to them, to those you disciple. You, you, you have to be patient and kind and be an example. All those things what discipleship is. But it's just as hard to be discipled because that means you need to, at times, submit like you would to a father. I don't fully understand, or maybe I don't fully agree. But that's why in the church, and it's still practiced in the Catholic church, a lot of the pastors are called fathers, uh, even though the Bible says not to do that. Um, But it's because that is the kind of relationship the pastor is to have with those he's discipling. And we're to have with those we're discipling. That's why... Older women are to be treated as mothers. Younger women as sisters. Right? We're to be a family and have that kind of relation. And so that is what's going on here with Pharaoh and Joseph. Now he tells them that he will give them the best of the land, the land of Goshen. From his own house he would provide for the brothers and the father's household. We come to Christ and it is he that provides from his own glory for our homes and our little ones. They are His to love and care for, and we are provided the best of the land, that is the church, from which we are made to be fruitful and we multiply. The brothers were not to tell Joseph, were, uh, not to tell Joseph what they hoped, but what they themselves have seen and heard. This is why we are called witnesses. We witness to a dying world that the famine will kill us, if we do not draw near to Christ in peace, we have an eyewitness account that Jesus is God and that He rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3-8. The Word of the Lord reads, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I, have, I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, He was seen by me also." as by one born out of due time. These witnesses wrote the New Testament. So, here's the situation. Paul's writing a letter to a church that was going to be widely circulated in the first century while Paul was still alive. And he says that there was 500 people that seen the risen Christ all at one time. And they were still alive. They could go be questioned if there was a, a... any argument as to whether or not this truly happened, right? And the Jews and the Romans, if they wanted to squelch the church, could have just easily went to his tomb, pulled his dead body out and say, goofball, he didn't raise. Here he is. Here's his body. They couldn't do that. They couldn't do that. There's been a lot of theories by a lot of really, really smart men who say a lot of stupid things, like, oh, well, he swooned. He wasn't really dead. Uh... You need to read this account of what they did to him while he was uh, alive, before he died, uh, and see that that's just ridiculous to think. I mean, his, you could see his insides. They beat him so much. Oh, well, they just had a delusion. You think 500 people saw the same delusion at the same time. You might be a little delusional. So we have this as an eyewitness account. We don't only have this, but we had them. They lived at that time and could have been questioned. They were. And some were questioned to death, literally. Nobody, nobody that wrote any of the New Testament became rich. No, they didn't have a good life. You know, they didn't have their best life now. A lot of them were hung upside down or beheaded or burned at the stake or fed to animals. Right? So they had every reason to say this is not true. But they were so convinced because they saw what they saw that they were willing to die for it. They were willing to die for it. So we now then have the authority of Christ to go out into the world and say, this is true, repent and believe. There's a day that God has set that all men will be judged. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. We don't have to tell everybody that they're going to die. We don't have to scare them. We don't have to, we don't have to do all that. You know why? Because they know they're wicked and they know they're facing death. They know they are. Every one of us know that we will one day die. And we know that if things stand as they are, we're doomed. We know that. Now, also, the thing that the Bible tells us would happen to those who Christ manifested Himself to does happen. We, like Paul, began to hate the things we used to love, and we love the things we used to hate. I never wanted to come to church. My wife had to, nearly on bent knee, plead with me to come to church with her through tears. Didn't want to go. And the whole time I was getting ready, I was just hoping this Mike Chambers fellow wasn't going to preach past the kickoff. Because all I cared about was the Steelers playing football. That's all I cared about. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get up, sit in my underwear with my coffee, and watch game day from 9 o'clock until 1 o'clock, and then watch six hours of football. That's what I wanted to do on Sunday. Listen to me. Saturday night is like Christmas Eve to me as a kid. I cannot wait to get here. Y'all seen my Facebook post? I I ain't lying. I cannot wait to worship. I love being here. I wouldn't hang out with none of you jokers before. I can't wait to see you. I love y'all. I want to be with y'all. I want to do life with y'all. Because y'all were in Christ. Y'all were my family. I love it. I wouldn't do this for nothing in the world 30 years ago. But you can't keep me from here now. COVID couldn't keep me from here. 
Nothing. Nothing. And if they do another mandate, I'll tell them to go jump too. I'm going to be here if I can. Because this is where I love to be. Because that is what God does to us. He changes our hearts. And it's not something that happens overnight. <clears throat> but we desire and strive toward a life pleasing to God. We are in fellowship with a God with com- who has compassion. And He kisses and He talks with us weekly. We eat Christ and He talks to us in the weekly service. This was shadowed forth in this passage. Right? Joseph was gracious. He goes to his brother. He says, draw near to me. And he speaks peace to them. And then they sit down and they commune together. This is what we do with our Savior every week. We commune together. And we commune together with each other. We should be growing closer together. We should be more involved with each other's lives. We should be doing things together. And we should be loving, growing in love for one another. Joseph binds, <clears throat> Pharaoh binds Joseph's words and makes them commands. Verses 16 through 20. The good news of the brothers come, uh, to, uh, coming to repentance reaches Pharaoh's house. They have come and we can have this mean that they and Joseph were at peace. Right? That's what they were thinking. This is good news, and this news pleases uh, Pharaoh and his servants well. This points us to the fact that the Egyptians loved Joseph and wanted what was best for him and his brothers. We are not told, but should assume, that what Joseph had told his brothers to do was somehow told to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh, uh, to show that he was pleased with Joseph, gives this as a command to Joseph and the brothers. Now this probably was Pharaoh thinking, okay, we're in a famine, we're in a worldwide crisis, and there's a food shortage. And so Joseph's going to bring down 70 souls to eat more food. This might be seen as a bad thing. So instead of making Joseph look bad, Pharaoh said, if you're going to be mad at anybody, you have to be mad at me because I'm giving a command. Right? <clears throat> and, and that's what he does. Right? This meant that if Goshen... Being given to the Hebrews angered anyone, they must be angry with Pharaoh. Likewise, what is decided in the church, as long as it is not a command to sin, is binding in earth and in heaven. Matthew 18, 18 through 20, reads, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This is not to say that there is an authority on earth that the, he- that the heavens must obey. That God somehow is bound uh, by some man's word. That, that's not what we're saying. Rather, what is being taught here, specifically in Matthew, in the context of the chur- is, is in the context of church discipline, is that the church having the Word and Holy Spirit can be seen as speaking for Christ. If we say that a man is excommunicated, heaven says so as well. Pharaoh, sitting in the type of God, the Father, here says what Joseph says, and then makes that word a command. We need to see that, that we need to have God speak to us through ordinary means on issues. This is why Presbyterian government is so important. We are a representative government of equals. I represent you at Presbytery. God willing, in May, Robert will as well. We represent this congregation at Presbytery. But at Presbytery, all the men represent the church. And we make decisions and hand down rulings. It's a a higher court. That's all it is. So if I do something that you think is sinful then you can appeal to Presbytery. And trust me, they'll look into it. And if I've done something sinful, they'll deal with me. And if I don't repent, they will remove me. Right? It's the way it is. And we need that. We are not one man making decisions concerning an issue. 
Right? Like, so I can't get up here and say, hey, guys, God spoke to me, and He says, y'all need to buy me a truck. And I've got it picked out. Now, five minutes after Robert pulls my wife off of me, I would repent of that statement because she would beat me about my head and neck. But we need to understand that one-man rule in a church is as dangerous as monarchy. A one, why Presbyterianism was suppressed under King James. No bishop, no king, he said. If you were ruled by a group of equal men in the church, that is what you will desire in your government. Why Presbyterianism is hated today? Because the commies are trying to take it over. We stand against such foolishness. Our church says no man, no man rules absolutely. But we are also a constitutional republic as Presbyterians. That is, the Presbytery cannot come and voice their desires on an issue and say it is God speaking. Right? Everybody has to wear purple on the third Sunday of the month. Well, is it sinful to wear purple on Thursday? No. Is it sinful for you to command me to do so? Yes, it is. I can't just say whatever I want to. I'm bound. The presbytery is bound by the Word of God. We have to only say, thus says the Lord. When we make decisions and we hand down rulings, it has to be based upon the Word of God. And if it's not, let me commend this to you. Don't obey it. Don't do it. Right? Just don't do it. You got to buy me a truck. Laugh at me. Laugh at me getting my butt whooped in public. But laugh at me, because that's what's going to happen. So we need to understand that it's not just arbitrary. It is God's Word, rightly interpreted, right, and together, worked out together. There's sometimes debates about that. What does this say? What does it mean? Within Presbytery, there is dis disagreement. And so we vote. But we know that God is in control of even the lot that falls into the lap. Right? The dice at, that's thrown. Every time you throw a dice, God is the one that makes it come up. It's the only reason I didn't get so mad at Jonathan when he whipped me so bad at that game when we was playing at the house. Every time I'd roll a two, and that joker was rolling sixes. I'm like, man, I'm going to take him to Vegas. Anyway, so, no, we're not going to do that. So what, what we need to understand is, even in the vote, that is God speaking. That is God speaking. Because we have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, then we, we can work through these differences in, in interp interpretation. We, when we are voting, are saying this is what the Word and the Spirit say. And the outcome is of the Lord. And so it is therefore binding. And that's how that works, not the Pope making up stuff. Christ gives the provision for the journey and the eschatological clothing for eternal life. Verses 21 through 24. Joseph obeys Pharaoh's commands and provides carts and provisions for the journey there and back. The journey would be long and slow and hard. I believe that Jacob had increased and not decreased his inheritance. Thus, I believe that he was an extremely wealthy man. They would need wagons and donkeys to carry them and their things. And this is much like the disciples of Christ being sent into the wilderness of the world. He sent them as lambs among wolves. But we know that the sheep were not unarmed or provided for. They were given all they needed to accomplish what Christ commanded them to do. Matthew 28, 16-20 reads, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen? So now here's what we've got to understand. When he says all authority has been given, that means all power and all right to rule. It's been given to him. It's his. And he says, now go therefore and make disciples of the nations. He doesn't say go and attempt this. 
He didn't say, go try to do your best. He didn't say, I hope you can get it done. He says, go and do it. Make disciples of them, baptizing them and teaching them. That's the job of the church. And we've been given that power. Listen, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ, who walks with his disciples, has all authority. This means he can do as he wishes. This is the power that the church must walk in. We're not going to win our culture, right? With whimsical speeches, making people feel good and putting them on hayrods. That's not, that's not how this works, right? It's not how this works. We have to go in the power of Christ, discipling the nations. That means you call them to be obedient to Christ, whether they've made a confession or not, whether they've been baptized or not. You call them to righteousness. You show them what righteousness looks like. You have them in your house and they see what having a meal with your family every night looks like. What Bible study looks like. What discipline of your children looks like. Why? Because they don't know. They don't know. And if you don't show them, they won't know. That's how you disciple. That's how you disciple the nations. You don't disciple the nations by begging people to come down and, and have an altar call or, or that you're going to have a big hot dogs, you know, dinner. Listen, you're going to have to feed them forever if they... Because you quit feeding them, they quit coming. If the draw's the hot dog, take away the hot dog, there's no draw. Christ has to be the draw. Jesus has to be the draw. We have to be glorified by God. Our families have to shine forth like the sun to draw others to Christ. That's what we must look like. Not, not faking it, not, not putting on airs, being real with people. I fail. I have problems. I struggle just like you do with some of the same sins. Right? I, be honest. You know, my wife was mad at me this week because I was stupid. I did, some, did or said something stupid. Literally, it didn't happen this week, but I mean, it could have. Right? It, it really could have. And, and be honest. Man, I'm, I'm, I fail at times. And I need to be picked up and lifted up and encouraged just like anybody else. And we need to be able to do that with others. We are only going to win our culture through being obedient and walking in Christ's strength. Also notice that they all had their garments changed. This points to what we need. We all need this. In Christ. Turn to Matthew 22. We'll start in verse 1. Matthew 22, starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord reads, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized their servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there, who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he said, and he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Christ, who, Christ here is, is telling us that we need something. Now, what we have to see is that this parable does not tell us if it is to be understood of speaking of heaven 
or earth, right? Is, is, is the wedding feast here now? Or is it to be looked for in the future? Are our garments to be looked at now? Are we looking to be clothed now? Or are we looking to be clothed in heaven? And I think it's arbitrary uh, on purpose. I think Jesus leaves it uh, up in the air for us uh, so that we would see that it, that, that it is both. Right? We, we get our wedding garments at conversion. Right? We, we get it at conversion. We are changed and are progressively being changed. We're being sanctified. Our clothes are being changed. We are being clothed for the wedding feast. And in a way, we celebrate the wedding feast every week here at the table. Yet there there is a sense in which we must await until we are raised to get that wedding garment. We will be changed when our mortality is further clothed in immortality. 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4 reads... For we know that our earthly house, if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. We are in our wedding clothes as we come into the church, but we will be further clothed when we are raised in the house made without hands. Are you being progressively changed? Are you putting off sin? Are you seeking after righteousness? Do you cry out to God to kill sin within you? Sometimes only to hear my grace is sufficient. But are you doing it? Do you recognize your sins? Do you, do you seek to kill it? Are you wanting them to die? That's the question we have to constantly be asking ourselves. We don't want morbid introspection, but we do want to test ourselves. We do want to see that we're trying to do better. And so we must be clothed. And, and this, this is a picture of this new clothing is a picture of change. In fact, it was so prevalent in the first century church in the mindset of the old uh, the, the, the church fathers that you would be baptized and then you would change garments. It, it was symbolic. I, this, not this person anymore. And you put on new clothes to symbolize you were changed. You were made a new person. We are being made new, but we will finally and perfectly be changed when we're raised from the dead. The blessing of Christ will one day overwhelm Jacob and his spirit will revive. Verses 25 through 28. The brothers come to Jacob from Egypt and tell him Joseph is back from the dead. That is, he was raised out of slavery and made vicegerent of Egypt. Now remember what we said about Isaac being raised from the dead symbolically when the ram was caught in the thicket and took his place. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says he, he, he was raised from the dead. And here we have the same sim- symbology. We have the same uh, idea. The typology is there. Uh, Joseph was dead to his father. And now he's raised from the dead. And th- that through him, God has saved the world. Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. Now, when the Bible speaks of heart in the English uh, language, it's using the word heart like this. We, we know that he's not, it's not the blood pump uh, muscle in his, in his chest. It's not the blood pumping muscle in his chest that he's talking about stopped. As the word really means inner man or entire being. But uh, in, in the English language, uh, in, in Anglo culture, which we are uh, descendants of, that the heart, that's what it stood for. The Hebrew would have said his bowels or his stomach, right, stood still. It makes no sense in English to us, right? So just like I don't say to my wife, I love you with all my blood pump. No, you say I love you with all my heart. All of my being, all that is me loves you, right? And that's what it means. His being stopped. It stood still. He couldn't even think straight. He couldn't, his emotions were in disarray. He was undone, unbraided, we would say. 
Uh, and so that's what this means. They, he could not believe it. So remarkable, so amazing, so awesome that his son might be alive. He couldn't even, he couldn't even think, right? He, 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 he thought, I, I can't even hope to believe this is true. We also have to realize that the brothers had been dishonest on this topic before, right? They lied and said, we found this garment. And he knew that they were dishonest. We showed that a couple weeks ago. But the brothers did what Joseph commanded them to do. They witnessed to their father. And we can learn from this a tactic of evangelism. Give them the words and deeds of Christ. Paul says, I I, I committed to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified in your presence. Right? So, So this would mean if you're witnessing to somebody... Uh, the, the doctrine of election probably should not be where you go. Right? The, the five points of Calvinism, leave that off. That they are a wretched sinner, like you are a wretched sinner, and they can be saved just like you were saved. That's what you need to know. That, that's what you need to give them. You are going to die in your sins and go to hell if you do not repent and believe the gospel, just like I repented and believed the gospel. And, and, and we, we take what... One famous saint said, and I can't remember who said it, I am just a poor beggar showing another beggar where to get bread. That's all I am. That's all I need to be for them. But don't, we don't have to throw out our doctrinal credentials. right? We don't have to tell them, uh, you know, I'm the only person in the whole county that's read through the five uh, books of uh, Calvin's Institutes and, you know, do all that stupid stuff and you just, you know... You, and, it, and it's hard for preachers because when preachers start telling you something about the Bible, they, turn, they go into that preacher voice. And you're going, whoa, dude, chill. We need to chill. We just need to go to people with Christ. They need Jesus. All that other stuff can come later. All that other stuff, you can answer those questions when they come up. Don't bring them up. Why are you Presbyterian? Let's not talk about that right now. That's not the important thing. You're trying to get me off track. Let's stay on Jesus. When you have Jesus, we can talk about Presbyterianism. Until then, it's not important to you at all because you don't go to church and you don't love Jesus. Until you love Jesus and you're going to church on a regular basis and possibly coming here, we'll talk about Presbyterianism. If you find another church to go to that you love, go there. Fine. Let's talk about Jesus. Right? That's a good question. We can talk about that later. Pivot back to Jesus. We have to stop showing everybody how much we know and show them the one they need to know. They need to know Jesus. They don't need to know me. They don't need to know how smart I am. They don't need that. That ain't going to help them a whit. Not a bit. None. My intelligence has no bearing on their eternal souls. They need Jesus. And I'm telling you, the gospel is so simple, a five-year-old can convey it. So can we. You know what we have to do? We have to quit focusing on ourselves and focus on them and Jesus. Them and Jesus. Okay, so I beat that horse long enough. So that's, that's what we have to do. Right? So he did what, they did what he commanded. Now, the hearing and seeing, there was a change. Right? That's where the change came from. Jacob, what did it, what did it for Jacob? What, what made him believe? He saw the glory of Joseph in and on his sons. Joseph had clothed them and even gave five changes to Benjamin. Notice there's no envy here. There's no fighting, right? In fact, Joseph tells them not to fight, don't quarrel. You know why he told them that? Because they now had to go to their father and say, Oh yeah, by the way, uh, we sold our brother into slavery. We're going to have to deal with this sin. And you know what always happens when people are in sin together? Well, I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't have done it. This is your fault, Judah. You don't want to come up with this idea. Oh, yeah, Levi, you wanted to kill him. Like you did that whole town, remember? He says, don't do that. Don't do that. Go tell my daddy. I'm alive and come back. Do that. And so they are there, joyful that their brother's alive, clothed in new clothing, having all these gifts and great things from Egypt, and they come with carts to carry him away. 
Jacob saw the glory and was revived. Remember I told you to look for the usage of Jacob and Israel in the text. It's important. Jacob looked and Israel was revived. Jacob looked and Israel was revived. He wasn't Israel fully until this moment. This is exactly what we are told will happen when all the nations belong to Christ and their glory will make Israel jealous. Romans 11, 11 through 12 says, I say then, have they, that's Israel, stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to, provide them, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant, and this is 25 through 27, of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When God pours out His glory on the nations in full and the fullness of the Gentiles, all the Gentile nations have come into the church, then Israel will look and be jealous at the glory God has given the Gentiles and they will repent and believe. That's what God says. That's what's going to happen. right? The blindness will be lifted and all Israel will be saved. Now why does He say it that way? Because uh, Israel was the name of the Old Testament church, the Old Covenant church, and the church is the name of the New Covenant church. God said, I will change your name. But... We are of the same tree. Take that chapter 11 and you read it through. Paul gives the illustration of one root, the covenant. That is what binds us to the old church. People will tell you, well, Christianity is only 2,000 years old. No, brother, it's 6,000 years old and it started with Adam. And it has followed through until now. And, And we will one day be one tree again. And all Israel will be saved. May God reveal Himself to His people in such a way that we could not help but witness to everyone we come into contact with. May God grant to us to be further clothed in Christ's glory that the world would see and desire Him. May we see the church as the best of the land and long to be with Christ and His saints always. May God deliver the Jews from their blindness and bring all the nations into Zion. Amen? Let us pray.